0: Good morning, Saints. Great to see you in church. I'm not sure where everyone else is today, but I'm glad you guys are here. Eh? You know when the weather's really, really nice, people miss church because it's so nice, and then when the weather's miserable, they're like, oh, it's too miserable to go out. I don't know. doesn't sound like a Christian thing. I'm not being judgmental. Let's pray. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together here and worship you. As we turn our hearts to your word, we confess and acknowledge that our hearts are prone to wander. We have so many different feelings, but we cannot trust those feelings. We trust your word. And so, Lord, I ask now as we devote this time to gathering at the feet of Jesus, as it were, That you would, by your spirit, recalibrate our hearts and our affections around the truth of your love for us in Jesus. We commit this time to you for the greater glory of his name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 15, we're about halfway through that, beginning at verse 36, and we're going to go through, as Claudine read, to early in chapter 16. This morning, we're going to look at this passage in two related chunks. Okay, the first one is chapter 15, 36 to 41. That's going to be the first thing we look at. And then we're going to look at the second chunk, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. It's important that we see these two chunks, as it were, as one whole. Because they capture the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. You know, we've tracked so far through Paul's first missionary journey, taking some two years, and we're about to embark with him on his second missionary journey that'll take us all the way through to chapter 18. I think there's a map coming up behind me. Um, I put up a map the other day, and some people said it was really helpful. I actually think PowerPoint is just for the rhetorically lazy, but it's a concession to the hardness of men's hearts. Um, look at, here we have Paul on his second missionary journey. He's going to make his way up around here through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidia. He's going to travel through Troas, and he's going to go to a place called, what's it called? Philippi. You might remember that from the letter to the Philippians. He's going to go through here to another one you might recognize, That's right, and then the Bereans, who were noble because they heard the message and considered the scriptures to see if these things were so. He's going to make his way down through to another one, and then all the way across to this one, and then back to Paphos, and then make his way back up. So this is what we're going to be tracking over the next few weeks. These two accounts that we're looking at this morning, the second half of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, they're related Because in them, two things happen. Perhaps you noticed when Claudine was reading them. The first thing that happens is that Paul loses a friend in Barnabas. The second thing that happens is that Paul gains a friend in a guy named Timothy. That's right. Well, in this, just at a very superficial level, before we get into the text, I want you to see something I want you to read these verses and behold the Lord God's faithful provision. Look, it, it goes without having to say, but each and every one of us need a good friend, don't we? I think we live in a culture that undervalues the cardinal importance of friendship. We live in a community where, by and large, we live right on top of each other, and yet we're all strangers. We are somehow friends and following and connected on social media platforms, but those relationships never go beyond the superficial, perhaps even the hostile. We need friends. My late Grandma Glenn, I've told you stories about her. She was a prayer warrior and a mighty Christian woman weighing all of about 92 pounds. When she prayed, the earth shook And her favorite hymn of all time was a song that said, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know, in this passage, we already see the goodness of the Lord God in providing Paul with a friend. And and I want you to see at another level in this passage, even before we get into it, that not only do we see the Lord God's provision, but we also see a paradigm. Paul was graced by God with Barnabas and with Timothy. Paul had someone who was discipling him and someone whom he was discipling. And you know, Christian man or woman, we each ought to have the same. In our own lives, we ought to have a Barnabas, someone who is more mature in the faith than someone who's discipling us. We ought also to have a Timothy. Someone that we are intentionally investing in and discipling. And so right off the onset of this passage, who is your Barnabas and who is your Timothy? Well, let's dive deep now into this passage. So look at verse 36 of chapter 15. In verse 36, we're told that after they have spent some time in Antioch, they were there to encourage the saints and to refresh their own souls with the judgments of the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas determined that it was time to move on. Note, before we move on, that the judgments of the council were simply this. First, the Jerusalem council, back a couple of verses ago, recognized that the same spirit that had fallen upon them and caused them to be born again and saved had also fallen upon the Gentiles. Gentiles are being saved, non-Jews. It's the first thing the council said. The second thing that this council gathered in Jerusalem said in their letter, it was their judgment that it was not necessary for these Gentile Christians to keep the law of Moses, circumcision in particular. And all the Gentile male adult converts said, amen. They concluded that the law of God never saved anyone anyway, so why would they place this heavy burden on these Gentiles who were already saved? Instead, they said, look, here are a handful of best practices that you would do well to keep. That's what the Jerusalem council said. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're hanging out at Antioch. They've got this letter from the council in Jerusalem stating these things to the Gentile Christians. They now determine it's time to move on with that letter. In their hearts, we're told that they longed to get back to these churches that they had started. Back to the Asian continent. They wanted to further ground these churches in the word of God and to check in on them. That's what it says in verse 36. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verses 37 to 39. We're told that a sharp disagreement arose between Barnabas and Paul. Well, Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark on this second missionary journey. And Paul, probably not very diplomatically, said, yeah, no. Right? Not going to happen. Over my dead body. See, Paul thought that John Mark was unreliable, and, and he could have built a pretty good case for that, right? He's, he's proved himself unreliable when he deserted the missionary trip back in Pamphylia the last time. And so Paul was like, yeah, I'm not having any more of that. Paul was like, I don't want to have anything to do with anyone in our mission party that's going to welch in the face of persecution. Well, we're told in this passage that the difference on this matter was not only sharp, but it was irreconcilable. Verse 39. Paul and Barnabas separated. Barnabas then takes John Mark and they make their way with the gospel to Cyprus. In verses 40 to 41, Paul chooses Silas with the blessings of the other brothers in Antioch and they make their way up through Syria and Sicilia. So what are we to make of this account? What what does it mean to us today? Look, we're convinced that all scripture is breathed out by God, that all scripture is profitable. Why is this in the Bible? What should we take away? Well, on the one hand, I want you to see that it is possible for Christians at times to disagree. It's possible for Christians at times to disagree and for God to still redeem and use the outcome of that spat. Let me say this in a different way. Whatever ego or folly might have been loaded into this dispute, the purposes of God are never handcuffed by human folly. God took even this sharp dispute that arose and used it for his purposes. But I want you to go deeper into this, okay? There's yet more for us to glean from this passage. And and here's just a little lesson on how to read the Bible. How can you read narrative parts in Scripture like this and get the most possible out of it? Well, I want to suggest a couple of things. The first thing that you need to do is steep yourself in the Scriptures so that the breadth and the bounds of Scripture become the breadth and the bounds of your thinking. Steep yourself in the entire narrative of the Bible to the point that the logic, the grammar, the warp and the woof of God's word just becomes your default factory setting. That's the first thing you need to do. Then, once that's accomplished, you put yourself into the story and see how it feels. And so, to get this deeper point out of this passage, we're going to put ourselves into John Mark's shoes or sandals. Look at John Mark. John Mark is uh, Barnabas, well, he's either Barnabas' cousin or nephew. We're not exactly sure. It could could mean either. And John Mark's resume was far less than stellar. You know, if he applied for a job at St. George's, I wouldn't hire him. (laughs) Would you? He, He has on his resume that he abandoned the mission in Pamphylia. He got fired by Paul. He was brought back on, you know, maybe through nepotism, through Uncle Barnabas. And then after a short stint on a little missionary journey into Cyprus, once again he wimps out and returns back to Antioch. (laughs) To top it all off, John Mark lives under this burden of guilt for having caused a sharp disagreement between two pillars of the church, two men that he loved, Paul and Barnabas. I think it's safe to say that John Mark is not feeling like the shiniest nickel. And friends, this is precisely where this passage speaks to us today. This account in Acts chapter 15 speaks to you when you are feeling like a loser. When you look at your life with 20-20 hindsight, And on your shoulders, you are carrying the burden and guilt that comes along with failure. When you are living under that heavy yoke of what could have been, what should have been. When you do an honest assessment of your life, and you say, man, things just haven't worked out the way that I would have hoped. Now, to be sure, there are Many different varying reasons why things don't work out as we hope, right? Sometimes it's because of bad timing. Sometimes it's because of outside influences, like the wicked malevolence of other people set against us who are scheming. Sometimes that's why things don't work out. Sometimes things don't work out and we fail and it's actually no fault of our own. I've seen that many times. And when that happens, there's definitely a sense of injustice. You think, man, that just wasn't fair. But what's far worse than that is when things don't work out and you know that it was 100% your own fault. Well, see, that's John Mark. John Mark right now is sensing the cruelest cut. He is all too aware of that harm and injury that we cause to ourselves. Well, perhaps you can relate to that this morning. Have you ever been fired from a job? Have you ever been confronted with the reality of failed relationships when you know that You know, no matter how flat you squish the pancake, it's always got two sides. At least 50% of it's your fault. Have you ever had moments in your life where you couldn't stand up to the test? And you just feel like a loser? Well, friends, you know that it's true. You can't trust your own feelings. As a Christian man or woman, you know that your feelings are going to be all over the place, and they will be vying for the seat in your life that belongs only to the Lord God. So if you can't trust your feelings, where do you turn to map your way through meaning and reality? Well, you turn to the Word of God. Here we have John Mark, and after repeated failure, he's He's going to end up back in Antioch. And get this it's in Antioch that he writes the Gospel of Mark. Think about that. Consider that for a moment. You see, God had a plan for Mark, and nothing in God's economy is ever wasted. Every failure, every disappointment, every experience that he had during his mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, during his times of self-reflection and self-doubt and failure, God was using it all to build his character and to make him into the man who would, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write a book of the Bible It's all accumulated time and experience. You know, the same is true for you today. You may be sitting here this morning and that thing that you are most ashamed of, that thing that you wish nobody in church ever found out about, God is redeeming and using that for his ultimate purpose in and through your life And for his glory. Look, John Mark wanted to go on these missionary trips, right, with Paul and Barnabas. He wanted to take the gospel to Asia and beyond, but he failed. And instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned a book of the Bible that has been a source of encouragement and strength for Christians throughout the millennia. God not only redeemed those losses for John Mark, using them for this greater task for his glory, but we're also told that God redeemed the relationships involved. You don't have to turn there, but in Philemon 24, we're told that Paul and John Mark were eventually reconciled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read of Paul's great respect and admiration for Barnabas. So here's the the point from this first chunk. You have failed, and you carry the burden of those failures, but God still has a good purpose for you, his child. And his purpose for you is for your comfort, but it's primarily for his glory. Friends, that's hope for everyone who's ever felt like a loser. It's hope that is certain and secure because, you know, the worldly narrative tells you that you will find hope and meaning and purpose when you look more deeply into yourself. And we all know that that's a lie. Because the deeper you go into yourself, the better acquainted you become with your own frailty and weakness and vulnerability this is gospel hope that is certain and secure because it's not based on yourself. It's based on God. It's based on his immutable character. It's based on his strength and his will and his sovereignty where he can take whatever mess you've made of your life and redeem it and use it for good. God not only redeems your failures, but through your failures, he redeems you. Look, I want to move on to this next chunk, but not too quickly, because it is true, and we see it in John Mark, that God redeems failures and frailty and weakness and uses them for greater glory. But the far more important thing for you is that through your failures and weaknesses, God actually redeems you. If you never failed, well, there's only two possibilities. Either you're pretty darn good, like as good as Jesus, or you're a liar. In fact, your failures and your foibles and your sins in your life serve the greater purpose of stripping you of any sense of self righteousness if you could do it yourself you wouldn't need a savior and so god redeems your failures but through your failures he's also redeeming you by showing you your need for jesus by bringing you to a place where you know that your only hope standing before a holy god is in a righteousness that is alien from God to you in Jesus Christ, more real than your feelings. God's redeeming you. All right, that's the first chunk. The second chunk, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. So um, Paul and Timothy make their way to and Lystra, Oh, sorry, Paul makes his way to Derby and Lystra. There he finds a disciple named Timothy. He's the son of a Jewish woman who is a believer, and his father was a Greek. He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wants Timothy to join this mission team, and so he took Timothy and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for their observances the decisions that were reached by the apostles and elders at the Jerusalem council just a chapter ago. Okay, that's what's happening. So you're reading this and you're thinking, man, that doesn't make any sense. Paul told Timothy that he had to get circumcised while he was taking with him the letter of the judgment from the Jerusalem council that said you don't have to be circumcised right that's that's so odd isn't it until you dig deeper and you discover that paul understood that now in light of the council's judgment christian circumcision did not carry with it any moral or ethical weight. It was adiaphorous. It's a fancy word. You can work that one in at lunch. Things that are adiaphoral, they are decisions that carry no moral or ethical weight. They are judgment calls in the moment, given the immediate context. You can make one decision or the other, and it's right or wrong, not based on being a moral absolute, but on the context in which you find yourself. That's, a, that's an adiapheral decision. And so this decision that Paul makes to circumcise Timothy, it wasn't based on theology or ethics, but it was based entirely on strategy. This was evidenced by the fact that later in another missions trip, The same issue arises with another young man that Paul brings on board, a guy named Titus. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You can turn there, or I'll just read it to you. It says, Then after 14 years, this is Paul writing to the Galatians. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, so here's what's happened. In these two instances, we see on the one hand that Paul requires Timothy to be circumcised, he circumcises Timothy. But shortly after that, Titus joins the ministry staff. (laughs) And Paul's like, Yeah, you're a Greek too, but you are not being circumcised. Why is that? What's going on? Well, let's unpack this and see the underlying logic. You see, you got to start with the fact that Paul was a keen strategist. Perhaps more so than anyone else in human history, Paul was motivated by ambition for the gospel. Not a personal ambition. He didn't want a big name. He didn't want to be famous. He wanted the gospel of Jesus to cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. He, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, said, Look, when I'm with the Romans, I behave like a Roman. When I'm with the Jews, I behave like the Jews. I've become all things to all people that by some means I might win some. He was a strategist. He also, at this moment, understood that there were Jewish Christians who would have scruples about these adiaphoral matters of circumcision. These are the same issues that he talked about later in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about meat that was offered to idols. So if we're going to understand this moment, let's go back and revisit that argument. When... Paul's talking to Christian men and women, and he's saying, look, if you find yourself in a circumstance or situation, 1 Corinthians 8, where you are being offered meat that has been sacrificed to idols, what should you do? And his argument there is look, that's adiapheral. You it has no moral or ethical implication itself. Christ is the head of all things. These idols to whom this meat has been offered, they are dead, they are dumb, they're nothing. So give thanks to God and eat the meat. That's what he says. But then he puts an important qualifier on. And he says, unless there is someone there with you who has scruples over these adiaphoral things, then, then don't eat it. Acquiesce to the weaker brother and don't offend their conscience for the sake of strategy, for the gospel. Be sensitive to the weaker brother. See, this is helping us to understand why Paul required Timothy to be circumcised, even though he didn't have to be, according to the Jerusalem Council. They're going to go on a missions trip, and Paul's saying, we're going to go and we're going to be dealing with Jews, and they're weaker brothers who do not yet understand Christian liberty in Christ, and so you should be circumcised just for the sake of, like, Gospel strategy. Well, it's the same thing with meat that's being offered to idols. This is a good principle for Christian unity and love, isn't it? Those who are stronger shouldn't be puffed up with knowledge. But they should prefer the weaker brother. Acquiesce to his scruples on non-gospel issues. It's a good Christian principle, but... It can also be taken too far. That's what we see with Titus. If you overplay that one, you know, you just need to always defer to the weaker brother, then there is a dynamic that can emerge that R.C. Sproul calls the tyranny of the weaker brother. Let me show you how that works. It is a matter of sensitivity and strategy, to acquiesce to the weaker brother on morally neutral matters. Circumcision, for example. Timothy's circumcised. However, if the weaker brother demands that you as the stronger brother knuckle under his yoke and his burden, then you need to vehemently refuse it. That's why Paul refuses to have Titus circumcised. For the sake of the gospel. So when when a weaker brother takes these adiapheral matters, these secondary matters that are not moral, not ethical, they are matters of just judgment calls given context, when the weaker brother takes those things and tries to make them for you a gospel issue, if you don't do this, you're not really saved. If you do this, you're not really saved. That's when you do not acquiesce. That's when you say no. So that's why Paul, for the sake of strategy, circumcised Timothy, but for the sake of the gospel, refused to circumcise Titus. So let's be really clear on this. Paul and Timothy are taking with them the judgment of the council. No need to circumcise Timothy. There's no need. That's what the council has determined. What do you have to do to be saved? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because Timothy is free to not have to come under the law, Paul, the strategist, says, well, that means that you are also, therefore, free to voluntarily come under it for the sake of gospel strategy. So Paul circumcises Timothy for reasons of strategy. But then he refused to circumcise Titus under the heavy demands of weak Christians with an anemic understanding of gospel liberty. How does this apply for us? Well, the first thing to say, Christians who live together in one church, you're going to have differences of opinion on many different things. And if those differences of opinion are on issues that are not central to the gospel, how is one saved? How does one know that they are saved? Then you don't have to go to war over every issue. If you think that you are the stronger brother and you know better, then defer to the weaker brother. Not every issue that comes up in the Christian life is worth going to war. But some are. Some are. That's the takeaway. When someone tries to take a secondary issue and make it a primary gospel issue, when they try to add to the gospel... Then you must meet that opposition with equal and appropriate force. I don't know what are some of the what are some of the examples of this. Look, there are some Christians who say, um, "Yeah, you're you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, um, but you're not really a Christian unless you read the King James Bible." Or are they? I mean, it seems silly, right? They say things like, "You're you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ," but. You're not really a Christian unless you worship from, brace yourselves, the book of common prayer. You're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith and repentance and trust in him. You're saved by his action on the cross for you and in your place. But once you're saved, you'd better grab yourself by the bootstraps and start doing a better job. Well, see, Paul would meet that with great force. If anyone adds to the gospel, Paul would say a hard no. All right, so Paul and Silas have launched out on their second missionary journey. So far, we've seen that God redeems the failures of John Mark and redeems this dispute that divided Paul and Barnabas. We've also seen here Paul modeling Christian wisdom and gospel conviction at Timothy's expense. And now we close with chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Well, there's been three times in the last chapter that this similar wording was used. Back in chapter 15, verse 32, it was in Antioch with Judas and Silas. Back in chapter 15, verse 41, Paul and Silas are traveling through Sicilia. Back in chapter 16, verse 5, where we are right now, as they're moving through Galatia, so the churches were strengthened and encouraged and increased in numbers daily. It seems so obvious, but it's so profound. This is the work of the good news of God's love for you in Jesus. It's what the gospel does in the hearts and minds of Christian men and women. It's what the gospel does in churches. It strengthens. It encourages And it increases in number. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, I pray this morning for those here who are all too aware of their own failures and faults. God, would you grant them hope and trust? That you indeed are sovereign. That nothing in their life has been wasted. That you are working out a plan that will bring you glory. Father, I also pray for those here this morning who have been laboring under the heavy yoke of legalism and laws that have been heaped on top of the gospel. that in Christ we would find the strength and the liberty having been set free from the law, that we are also free to observe the law as the context would be best. Jesus, be glorified in everything that we say and do in our lives and in this church. Amen.